Aalto University Podcast. This is Cloud Reachers. I'm Tommy Kauppinen and uh, today I'm here with Can you introduce yourself? Yes. Uh, hi, Tommy. Uh, I'm Patrick O'Shea. I'm an associate professor of instructional technology at Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina. Wow. How are you doing? Where, where are you actually now? Are you at home or at the office? Or Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm doing fantastic. And uh, thank you so much for inviting me onto the podcast. This is, uh, this is a great honor. Uh, yeah, right now uh, I'm in my house. Uh, I, I do most of my work from my home anyways. Even before the pandemic, I was working from home. And I uh, the, the, the geography of America is a little bit weird, but I actually don't live in North Carolina. I live in Virginia Beach, Virginia. It's <laughs> a coastal town. It's a, a beach town. And uh, uh, it's about a six-hour drive for me to get to my office, which I am very hap- happy that I don't really have to do much anymore. Wow, I didn't know that. Wow, that's that's yeah. like the benefit of uh, this whole remote work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it, it's it's a weird thing to think of the pandemic having silver linings, but it did it did for me, you know, because uh, clearly I can do my job from pretty much anywhere. So well, living six hour drive away is not difficult, uh, at least in terms of getting my work done. Yeah, nice. Hey, um, in this uh, Cloud Reaches episode, I would like to um, have a walkthrough of, um, I mean, walkthrough to um, all of your deep expertise as, uh, of course, as a professor, but also as a media program or education mm-hmm. media program uh, director. So can you please share to listeners about your activities and perhaps some of your background so that you so that they get the context? Sure. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I've been working at App State for about 10 years now. And in that role, I've been uh, the, the uh, for the predominant time, I've been just a, a simple professor working with uh, master's level and uh, doctoral level students on educational media uh, technologies, predominantly working with augmented reality in my research, um, but uh, working with media production and other uh, kinds of media literacy. Um, so yeah, the, 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 that's the topic, that's the content of uh, what we teach. But I also am the program director for the media ed media program, uh, which means that I do a lot of student uh, uh, advising. I'm responsible for the scheduling, all of those kinds of mundane things that are done to keep a program of study running Um, I'm not going to say smoothly because I'm still learning as I go, but <laughs> I do my best. And <laughs> so we try to keep it straight and uh, keep our students happy, keep them engaged um, and keep them coming back. We do all of our teaching in our program online and have for the entirety of the time that I uh, have worked at App State. And so uh, more recently, we've been using mostly Zoom, but in the past, uh, we've we've used virtual worlds. Um, both of our own creation and commercial products that uh, we've kind of cycled through a few of those options. Um, and we're we're exploring updated versions so that we can kind of get out of just Zoom fatigue a little bit for our teaching. Mm-hmm. 
Well, um, let's, I mean, you mentioned augmented reality. Let's talk about it and, uh, and uh, perhaps virtual reality 360. So mm-hmm. how do you see it? What is the, what is the promise for learners there? And, uh, and, uh, perhaps in terms of, uh, does it offer more truly engaging environments or more social environments? What, what do you think? What, what kind of gap it, does it uh, fill? Um, see, that's the that's the hundred million dollar question. Someone <laughs> can actually figure this out. They're going to make a lot of money. Um, I've been working for even longer than I've been at App State. I've been working with augmented reality, looking at like the the educational benefits of it as a tool. And I can't tell you how often I'm asked the question: What is the value added? What does it bring to the table? Um, and my answer used to be. Uh, it, it used to be more about the um, engagement that was uh, that was uh, involved with the process, but as I've kind of learned and grown in this in this area, I really think that the the true benefit is in the immersion that it allows. Um, the, the the it's hard to explain. It's a little bit like art. You, you know it when you see it, but a lot of the augmented reality that is out there right now doesn't truly immerse students in the experience of the learning. Uh, it's used to present more content, and uh, we already live in a content-rich environment. We oftentimes don't need additional content. What we need is context for the content we have access to. And I think augmented reality can offer a means through which that context can be provided if it's done well. It just doesn't doesn't happen very often. We're still in the very early stages of using it to present materials rather than uh, tell a story about those materials. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. So contextualizing, well, how do you, is it um, just thinking about the context? Uh, so do you mean that um, they kind of understand how to apply perhaps to all those contents into something or, or uh, how do you, how would you define the context? What do you mean by context? Yeah, that's a, uh, again, that's a great question. <laughs> the idea um, in my head, what this means is, moving beyond just accessing information and towards a cognitive skill set that allows you to make sense of that content. Now, some of this is criticality, where people understand how to be critical about the things that they're reading and seeing mm. and, and uh, consuming on a, on a daily basis. But some of it also is just the, the, um, the holistic view of how things fit together. And, you know, when I, when I say like augmented reality can be used for like the, the true benefit is immersion, that's what I'm talking about doing. It's immersing people into an experience that allows them to see how pieces of information fit together to make something bigger than they are individually. That's where I think we have, uh, where, where we, where we're going. It's just a question of how quickly we get there. Um, personally, I believe, uh, I, I think of myself kind of as a storyteller. I use in my own teaching, I use a lot of my own personal history to illustrate points about uh, content and those kinds of things. 
And so that's when I that's what I'm kind of talking about is this idea that we move beyond simple discrete chunks of information as being the the, the important thing. Those are just a means to an end for me. They fit together in a puzzle. Uh, and, mm. and the puzzle is the, the, the tapestry of life <laughs> might, be, might, might be a way to say it. It's, it's the idea of um, none of these pieces of information are important in and of themselves, but the way they fit together um, is, is kind of what um, makes us as humans understand the world around us. We make sense of the world around us through the way we use information rather than the way we just have access to information. It sounds a little bit like just gibberish when I say it no, out loud, but no, it makes sense in my head. I, I love it. I, I love the puzzle metaphor and, uh, and, uh, and also the importance of connections and, and uh, almost like it's a, it's, a, it's a network. And if we only consume different just items of that network, then we don't really see the kind of the how to solve the puzzle. But when we start seeing the, all the connections and all, we, we start understanding what are the essential things to apply to certain challenge or problem in wherever we are using the learnings, then, uh, then we yeah. can actually solve those puzzles. I love it. Absolutely. I think I, should, can, we, can we make that um, puzzle state somehow visible for students? What do you think? <laughs> well, kind of. here's where it's very, like, I, I don't know how it is to teach other content areas, but I am tremendously lucky in the content I teach. Because as I said, I teach instructional technology. My goal is to usually help teachers, school administrators, those, those folks learn how to use technology more effectively in their environments. And so uh, there's no distinction between the content that I teach and the way in which I teach it. So I can use myself as an illustration of it. I can show the puzzle by explaining my own practice. Whereas if I were a chemistry teacher, I wouldn't be as interested. I wouldn't be as, you know, mathematics or biology or pick a, a law, whatever, pick a topic. Uh, it, it, the, the, in those cases, oftentimes the content is the thing that the students are interested in. And they aren't as attuned to the way in which the content is being delivered and the, the, the context that the teacher provides. That's what a good teacher will do. It will, you know, oh, yeah, they, yeah, you know absolutely. provide that context. But I can dissect my own practice and I can use it as an illustration to my students. I can actually say, here's the reason I have this particular activity. It's because I want to illustrate this instructional process that can be used for this technology. They don't have, like, I, I feel, I feel, um, I feel, uh, slightly bad for other content area teachers because they don't have that ability to do that easily. Um, the student who is in a biology class is simply there usually. They want, uh, it's a means to an end. And so they don't care about uh, Bloom's taxonomy or, you know, the, the, the uh, constructivist learning principles or any of these things. They want to just know, all right, <laughs> this, is the, this is the content I need. And they, the, all of the context that the teacher provides is kind of hidden. If the teacher mm. is doing it well, I should say. Mm. Um, that's great. Um, I, I so connect to that. I mean, I'm, I'm, as you know, I'm teaching information visualization. And I, I, I mean, it's a different thing. But 
it's about storytelling and and um, I can of course be very transparent that okay now by the way so I'm telling this story this way and you can actually use it also with your visualizations. Right. But I I want to ask you about um, three your views on uh, 360 environments because I mean as we see uh, it's a um, lot of different ways to um, make use of them. So one obvious is virtual reality and then augmented reality. Another one is just a 2D projection. We have a laptop and we have a 360. You can still move around. So mm-hmm. what is your take on that? Uh, um, you mentioned about immersion. Uh, so are we sacrificing immersion in one of these options? And if so, then what are the benefits? What is, what is your take on this? Mm-hmm. And, uh, what would you, success educators to and there are many listeners out there thinking about this particular question yeah um the the, the i i think that uh, you don't have to necessarily think about uh, uh sacrificing immersion with any given technology um like 2d computer-based uh virtual worlds clearly can be immersive or the video game industry wouldn't exist. So the idea that we need to have 360-degree headsets and those kinds of things to feel immersed, um, you know, that's that's not that's, the facts don't kind of bear that out. However, mm-hmm. clearly, a well-designed virtual environment that is accessed through a headset of some sort provides like a, a, a visceral reaction, a, like a sensual reaction. And I say that in the term of senses, you know, yeah. um, it, it provides that kind of positional awareness that you can't get through a, uh, through a 3D or through, through a 2D monitor kind of uh, uh, experience. Now, what is the, the I, I tend to think of immersion more about the story that is being told, the narrative. The in, that's what people are often engaged with with video games and those kinds of things. They're engaged with the interactive parts of it. And so if you are looking at telling a story, you can tell a great story with a, a, a 2D monitor, but you can also tell it in a different way with a 3D, a 360 degree immersive experience that uses headsets, um, and the more actively brings the person into that actual experience. It becomes much more of a physical experience. Like you can move around and you can like you can be positionally aware um, in a in a uh, like a head-mounted display kind of setting than you might be if you were sitting on your couch playing Call of Duty in, mm. uh, in on your on your Xbox or whatever. That's interesting. I mean I I so I so see your point. Uh, but what are, what does research say about augmented reality and and virtual reality? Is there some? I mean, and I I know by the way, all the listeners check uh, Patrick's work, uh, research papers, excellent papers about <laughs> augmented reality. So I mean, yeah. but in your own words, uh, what does your own research or other research say about augmented reality or virtual um, reality for education and learning? Yeah, I think that there's a. a, a I think that the research is showing the potential. It's untapped potential. It's unrealized, but it's there. Um, the 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 thing that I kind of pay attention to is how is the field progressing over time? Uh, 
And the progression, it, very early days when, like, when I started in augmented reality back in 2007 timeframe, uh, it, it was it was working, but it was mostly about looking at does does this technology engage students? Does it motivate them? Does it help students learn? Um, and over time, I think those questions have pretty much been answered. The technology does all of those things. It can help students learn. It clearly will motivate and engage students. Um, now, the question moving forward is, is there something inherent in the technology that does those things? Or is it a novelty effect? That kind of thing. Mm. Um, and I don't think that the field has really grappled with that. And I think that's partly because the... Um, the majority of augmented reality experiences that are used for educational purposes tend to be either one-off kind of events or short-term events, a week-long kind of experience. Uh, they're, mm -hmm. not, they're not sustained. And so you never figure out if you've actually gotten past the novelty effect. Um, mm -hmm. So that's where, I would, that's where I would like to see it go, is that idea of taking these immersive experiences and making it a month long or a semester long or a year long and seeing mm -hmm. if the engagement and motivation maintain over time, if they actually impact students uh, in, in different ways other than just learning. Because we also, in education, we seem to overvalue the numbers on a test at the end of a semester. And we kind of think, uh, a little, we don't we don't give as much focus on the other ancillary benefits, the the social aspects that can be created through experiencing these things together, or uh, um, I, you know we live in a time of lockdowns, and hopefully eventually this will all come back to some sense of normal. But this is a way where people can experience the same things without necessarily having to be in the same rooms together. Mm. So there's, there's the potential for health and safety uh, benefits to this as well. So these are the mm. kinds of things that I think um, as, we, as, as the field of augmented reality research grows and matures, that's where it will end up going, I think, is this idea of looking at the bigger issues than mm. uh, just looking, again, at uh, motivation, engagement, uh, student learning in a discrete, mm. like hour long experience or week long experience. Mm -hmm. Excellent. I, um, you just outlined, I think, the research agenda for, <laughs> for many years now. And, yeah. uh, and, and, uh, really perhaps research will find out if, uh, students can also do something. I mean, uh, this kind of can do, uh, attitude, uh, based on the, their learnings with the, augmented reality or holograms what do you what do you yeah. think about holograms by the way are they happening in the near future or i mean i know that there are uh, and you know that there are i mean these kind of early beta versions of holograms yeah. of this and that uh, have been by the way for 20 last years i think but uh how do you see that i mean will it will they happen so oh, well, yeah clearly holograms are going to happen it's not a question see for me most technological questions are not a question of if they're just a question of when um i had a similar question uh, i was doing some teaching this past week and one of the students asked me if we would ever see ready player one happen in real life 
And I told I told him, I said, yes, it's, it, again, it's not a question of if we'll see it, it's when. And my response there was that it's actually much closer than he might expect, since we're already talking about haptic suits and all that stuff. But uh, the the idea of of holograms, as I said, I think it's just a question of when, not if. Now, the purpose that we that that uh, understanding that and kind of assuming that it will eventually happen, that allows us to kind of separate out and say, all right, well, what is the purpose of the hologram then? Where if we're not if we're not trying to solve the hologram as a problem in itself, what other problems can a hologram help to solve? What, how does that technology help to solve uh, some need within a setting? Now, you've seen it in uh, like, uh, uh, like bringing, uh, um, uh, uh, bringing uh, uh, performers on stage at concerts oh, yeah, yeah. and doing those kinds of things. So that solves a particular problem of reintroducing an artist that can't be there physically, something like that. Whereas if we're trying to think about what that kind of technology offers in, say, educational settings, then we have to really start thinking in terms of this content versus context question again. And can we have like a virtual assistant in the classroom that just is the encyclopedia? A student goes up and asks a question. <laughs> and is given a set of facts or a set of information. I think that's actually pretty, uh, um, that might be very useful. It might be uh, um, a way to access information. I'm just, I, I'm not quite sure that, like I, if, the, if the ultimate question is, will holograms ever replace teachers? I'm very doubtful of that because teachers, they, they, they provide more than just information in the classroom. Mm -hmm. They provide guidance and structure that mm -hmm. is not as easy to do in a pre-programmed kind of thing. Like in order for a hologram to truly replace a teacher, then we're talking about it, like true AI that is adaptable and has, has the ability to control things. But um, even then, there's the, the, there's, there's the human aspect of teaching, the relationship building that happens between mm. students and teachers that I'm not quite sure a hologram would ever be able to offer, even if you're just trying to console a student who's having a bad day. Oh, can yeah, I, yeah. Can a hologram <laughs> do that? I'm not, I'm not quite sure. <laughs> well, perhaps it could, uh, yeah, but I, I so agree, of course, with you, but perhaps it could do some part. I don't know, perhaps uh, throw a nice show uh, to <laughs> Brighton. <Yeah. laughs> no, no, I... Good. Good I completely agree. I I don't want to I don't want to say that there's no role for these technologies. Mm -hmm. I just don't want us to say the only role is this thing. Yeah, I think no. as the technology evolves, we will be able to look at it and say, "All right, this has this allows us to do something we were never able to do before." Yeah, which is really the true potential of technology. Yeah, uh, one of my favorite quotes is. Uh, I'm, I'm paraphrasing this. It's not really a quote. It's um, uh, it's technology should be used to do different things, not things differently. And that means that you know we can take a technology, we can take a whiteboard, and it's just a, a different like it, it's just a chalkboard done differently. And we can take a smart board, and it's just a whiteboard done differently. But can we actually reinvent practice and do new and different things that have never been done before? If we can do that mm. with technology, then um, 
then I'm all for it. It's taking us in new and inventive directions that I'm most excited by. And I think that with something like a hologram, we really only know what the potential of it is when it happens and when people start thinking, all right, what can we do that is different from what we've done before? Um, we can, mm. you know, uh, we, and we can postulate all day long, but the, uh, it, when, uh, when the practice happens, that's when it will be uh, really, Im- really impressive to see him. Uh, in mm. real life. I really like that quote. And uh, I mean, so it's, it's not uh, this or that, but it's like, I mean, I mean, there is so much uh, discussion about human or AI. Come on, human with AI, human yeah, with exactly. hologram. And by the way, does the hologram that has to look, uh, does it have to look like a human being? I mean, doesn't. It can oh, look course. like whatever machine. I mean, yeah, <laughs> we are building. Fact, it, so. it, even even uh, like uh, uh, taking into account like the uncal- uncanny valley would imply that we don't want it to look like a human. The closer oh, yeah. it gets to looking yeah. like a human, the less it reaches that uncanny valley where it starts. We have revulsion to it. So having it be something like say C three PO makes a lot more sense because it's humanoid. But it doesn't. It, it's not trying to replace humans. Yeah. But we, the, the 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 structure, the form of what is presented through that hologram, could be whatever. I mean, I, and I'm uh, it, again. I, I I'm not naive enough to know that I have the answer to what it will look like. But uh, we need to separate ourselves from our preconceived notion about what it could mm. be, and say, all right, what what do we want mm. it to be? That's so true. Um, hey, I wanted to ask about, uh, your podcast. So you are, you are a podcaster. <laughs> you have the Versatilist <laughs> yes. podcast. Uh, so, um, what, what kind of idea you have for it? And, uh, what have you learned about making podcasts? And, uh, what is, how is the audience reacting? What is your experience? Yeah. Um, well, thanks. Yeah. So as you said, I, I host my own podcast called The Versatile List. And this is a podcast that's been going for about six years now. I think we just had our 225th <laughs> or sixth episode. Um, and it's an, it, 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 over time, it's morphed a bit. The, the, the Versatilist proper, what I call it, the Versatilist proper, is a, a weekly interview pro, uh, program where I interview people in the field of immersive technologies um, to talk to them about the work they're doing. And it's an informal conversation. It's meant to be an informal conversation. And I, I talk to the people I interview as if um, we had met at a conference and we're sitting down to enjoy a beer or a coffee mm-hmm. or whatever talk, whatever drink they prefer. Um, because in my experience, that is where the, the human relationship is where the best work gets done in, in conferences. You might see a couple of great sessions, presentations at a conference, but it's really sitting down with the people who are involved that at least I find most beneficial. And so I started the podcast uh, in 2015 um, in order to try to do that. Um, and it's called The Versatilist because uh, uh, um, I, I was tired of dealing in absolutes, the idea that there's only generalists or only specialists. There's, a, there's other categories of people. Um, and so a versatilist is someone who has the ability to move across domains and, when needed, learn deeply in a given context. Um, but the reality of being a versatilist, and I like to consider myself a versatilist, 
I'm adaptable. I, I like to think of it. Uh, I like to think of myself that way. Um, but the reality is that in order to be that, you have to have a wide array of knowledge and context at your hands. You have to be able to draw those connections between disparate pieces of information. Um, and di- so that means the, uh, the, the guiding ethos of the podcast is to talk to people who are using these technologies in a wide variety of fields, engineering, medicine, uh, uh, game design, computer programming, education, um, you name it. I've talked to people who are in textile manufacturing. And it's just, it, 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 it allows me to get a better picture of how these technologies could truly be used to benefit, um, to benefit everybody. I, uh, I think that we spend, and this isn't surprising, anybody who's in academia is always kind of finding about like, we talk too much to the people who are like us and not enough to other people. So computer scientists talk to other computer scientists. This is the publication game mm-hmm. often. We, we publish as academics, we publish in journals that are only going to be read by other people in our field. When in reality, especially in educational technology, the true beneficiaries of the work, I would like to think the, pe- the people who would benefit most from the work that I'm doing are the practitioners, the people who actually are going to use these technologies in, an, in a, uh, you know, a, a primary school or a secondary school. Uh, but they don't read those journals. They don't have time to read those journals. Mm-hmm. Um, and if the, even if they did, the technical jargon and edu-speak that are often used in those publications are not approachable for those people. They don't, they, mm-hmm. they don't understand that the, the, the <laughs> like when we start talking about methodologies for gathering and analyzing data, they don't have that same vocabulary. So mm-hmm. the podcast was my way of trying to be more approachable with the content provided to a larger audience and talk to uh, the, the, the people that I would be wanting to talk to anyways. That's, that's the key for me is I, uh, I, I've always had as my guiding principle of this podcast that as long as I'm interested in having the conversations, the podcast will st- still go. I don't, I, I, I'm not like, I, I, was, uh, I was surprised that people were listening, quite honestly, because I wasn't <laughs> in it to try to get an audience. I was in it to have the conversations. If other people wanted to listen along with that, fantastic. I was perfectly happy for them to do that. But I was more interested in just having the ability to talk with people. Mm, wow, I love that. I mean, I, I so I mean, I so connected that with everything that you were saying. And uh, it sounds like um, starting this uh, your post- podcast versatilist um, was a life changing. Um, experience uh, what are perhaps some other life-changing or career-changing events you have uh, experienced where something that you made you think about differently about yeah. stuff i mean world life <laughs> See, I, <could laughs> I know it's a deep a question <laughs> yeah i could go in a lot of different directions um the the thing that comes to mind is not career-based it's life-based um and just for context um I'm I'm the product of an international upbringing. My dad was in the Navy, the U.S. Navy, and so we traveled quite a bit, mostly within and around America. But I I lived overseas for a little while as well as a child. And in between my junior, uh, my sophomore year of high school, 
and my junior year of high school, I moved from um, uh, Newport, Rhode Island, Middletown, Rhode Island, a small town in a small state um, that uh, had a very specific, it was, it was an American education. Um, and in between that, I moved to Greece and my dad was stationed in a, a town outside of Greece. And I, I had to go to a private American community school uh, an ACS, an international school in Greece. And beyond just the reality of the differences in the approach, um, I, I remember having this conversation, and you're one of the few people like, that I've ever told this story to. I remember having this, uh, this epiphany on the trip over there. Now, you've got to understand, uh, everything is an epiphany when you're 15, 16 years old. Every, every, <laughs> every thought is very deep, right? But as I was, <laughs> the, the military never kind of, at that point, I don't know how it is now, but the military at that point, they never actually flew you directly somewhere. You had to like, it, it was like a 36 hour trip to go here, there and beyond. And so we were making all kinds of stops and we were, I was, I was exhausted. And I remember having this thought in my head that um, I, I, I was just, again, being the, 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 16-year-old kid, I was trying to figure out whether I liked myself or not. And um, I wasn't quite sure how to answer that, um, but I, 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 I started kind of exploring it a little bit. And I realized that I had been living in, in Rhode Island for about four years at that time. And it, you know, when you're talking about four years from age 12 to 16, a lot changes in that four years. So it's, it's, it's formative years for me. And I realized that during that time, I had kind of gained an identity for myself through other people's eyes. I was the smart kid in class, so I acted like the smart kid because people expected me to be the smart kid in class. I was the shy kid because people kind of expected that of me. I, was my, my, I had an older brother who was a huge sports uh, star at our school. I was not as athletic. I was athletic, but not to the same extent. And so I was my brother's little brother. And that was the identity that um, it was, it was kind of projected on me was this identity. And I started thinking, well, do I want to be that person? Do I want these identities for myself? And I realized, no, no, I, I would rather be my own person than let other people dictate who I was going to be. And Luckily, I was in this situation where I was going somewhere that no one had ever known me before. Nobody knew <laughs> who I was. They didn't have any preconceived notion. I could be the person I wanted to be and let that become the identity that got projected back from other people. Um, and so, you know, the, the, uh, the, the, I, I won't say that you know landing in Greece and starting school there was a different Patrick entirely. Um, I didn't change my 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 internal being. I still had all of my own uh, my own uh, morals and ethics and work uh, uh, like all of that stuff that I was doing on myself. But I did. <clears throat> I was more accepting of that. Like I was more outwardly conveying of who I wanted to be. Um, and this is all like, again, uh, you look back at it and you say, yeah, it, everything's a, a life-changing event when you're 16 years old. 
<laughs> but the, re- the, the reality for me, and the reason I reflect back on that particular instance is because it is held throughout the rest of my career, the rest of my life. I've tried to be who I am and let other people accept that rather than be who I think other people expect me to be. And that I think has served me pretty well because it allows me uh, in the career that I've chosen, it allows me to do really interesting things that in, that are intriguing to me, that are valuable to me, and defend those things as meaningful for my career. And that's what being an academic allows you often to do is... I don't necessarily have a boss who's telling me, no, you have to punch in a clock at 8 a.m. and leave at 5, you get an hour break. I don't have that anymore. I have the ability to control my own schedule. I have, to a great extent, the ability to control the work that I'm doing. Um, And so if I didn't have this idea of like doing the things that are interesting to me, then I might be looking for those outside uh, forces to tell me what I should be doing rather than just accepting myself and saying, no, these are the things I want to do. I, and if I do them well, then I will be able to defend them as valuable to the people who need to be defended to. Whoa. Thanks for sharing that. And I mean, I, <laughs> I don't know everything that you say. I like, I'm like, okay, well, I'm, I'm thinking exactly like that, but with one difference, I don't remember having one kind of this kind of turning point or even that, turned me to think like that but i have to perhaps after a while i i it comes to my mind but uh, thanks for sharing that Um, like i said those those kinds of um we all like have those formative moments in our lives where something clicks in our head and um i um i i don't know how much of this has been like a, a process or if i've i'm just you know I'm I'm approaching 50 right now, so I'm talking about something that happened almost 35 almost 35 years ago. So mm. who knows how much of this I built up in my own head to justify the the, the myth. I'm putting myth mm. in air quotes mm. of Patrick, but um, I I have a, a clear recollection of having that mm. thought process on a plane as I was. Uh, it was in between Siganella and some other. Uh, um, uh, airport that we were going to. I remember having that, and it might have been the exhaustion talking or whatever, mm. but I'm very happy that I have that recollection. Whether it is mm. a true recollection of an actual thing that happened or just something I've built up over time, the effect is still the same. I still feel, yeah. the, I, I still feel the effect of mm. that. And that's the... That's the power of storytelling, narrative. I mean, that's, that's also what we really need in our lives and careers, like to understand what did we learn when, how did we transform perhaps uh, from one thing to another? How did we cope with all the challenges? How did, how did we cope with, um, you know, kind of the outer world uh, looking at us and saying that, okay, yeah, well, you are shy, so you kind of do this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I really like it. How do you, um, talking about learning, uh, what did you learn last time? Uh, that, and did it happen online or did you read a book or just what's the um, street or? Well, yeah, I, I, I try to think of myself as a lifelong learner. And so I'm always trying to find out something new. Um, 
Now, like this on the small scale, like like a, a little piece of information that I just learned about. Um, I was having a conversation with a colleague, and we were talking about Ready Player One again because I was telling them about this student who asked me this. And she was she would she had just found out about haptic suits that are actually like in being demonstrated, full haptic suits um, that uh, uh, that are being produced. And so I was very happy to see that. But that's that's kind of a small scale thing. Um, like another thing, and so I went and I read an article about that. That's that's online. Um, uh, but uh, um, if we're talking about how like how I try to improve myself, um, I guess the exa- the example I would use is that I um, one of my greatest um, regrets in life is that I never learned a second language. Um, as an American, not many Americans yeah. do this. Yeah, <laughs> it, 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 it's 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 a cultural. I like to think of it as a cultural flaw, um, but it, 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 a second language is not valued, and in fact, is sometimes looked down upon in America. But I've always wanted to learn a second language, and so I struggled through French in high school. I took German in college. Neither of those really took because they were they were academic exercises more than like trying to learn the language. And so over the past year or so, I've been trying to learn Italian. Um, and it's becoming, I, I'm, I'm by no means fluent. Like I could probably have a, a stilted conversation with somebody in Italian, but it's it's taken root in a way that the previous uh, language learning experiences didn't because I'm taking it more valuable. I'm valuing it more. I'm actually sitting down and learning the grammar, not because some teacher is telling me the rules of the grammar, but because I'm trying to figure it out myself for the, for the joy of learning it. So that's where I, that's what I would say is like, uh, if you want the small scale, what am I, what have I learned recently? It's, it's about haptic suits, but on the bigger scale, it's, you know, the process of learning Italian has been really rewarding for me. So great. Hey, um, please share uh, the article you read uh, and we can perhaps link it to the podcast. I think uh, many of the listeners, including me, will be very interested in, in that. I, I love all the haptic suit uh, stuff. I yeah. think it's it's phenomenal. And uh, by the way, Italian as well. I, I've learned uh, something on the way. So I have an hour, again, an Italian student actually from Italy. And uh, we mm-hmm. had a Zoom called uh, right Right today, um, who is doing a thesis on augmented reality. So it's, oh, nice. it's always, you know, an op- op- possibility to learn some new words. And, uh, yeah. and, uh, you know, I have learned this guy, any more small things, va bene, grazie mille. Posso avere una cafe, per favore? Yeah, very useful things. stuff. Yeah. No, exactly. that's the important thing. If you're a coffee drinker, you need to know how to order a I, coffee. I'm, I, I don't know if I ever said, but I'm a, I'm a hobby barista. So I have an actual espresso machine nice. from Italy at home. And I, nice. I, I order beans from Italy uh, directly. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. funny thing is that they are actually cheaper there than in our local. I mean, Finland is super expensive. I mean, you wouldn't believe it. But anyways, and uh, they are so good quality. Mm. So, hey, um, universities. What do you think? What 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 is your vision about universities? I mean, there is so much about these certificates, batches, companies yeah. also offering training. They say that they also. I lost your um, audio, Tommy. Sorry. They also uh, offer um, 
even decreased, at least they say. So what is your take on that? What do you think? Um, I think that there's there's a, a challenge. There's a there's kind of a friction that's happening here. We have student needs that need to be filled, well, that are by and large uh, uh, like the, the 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 pressures from industry to try to produce the the workers that they need, and so that's what that's why we get into these micro credentialing, you know, badges and those kinds of things, certifications, and those clearly they serve a purpose. Uh, so I would imagine that in the future there's going to be a a, a greater pressure towards those kinds of micro-credentialing at the university level. Six-week courses rather than full semester courses, those kinds of things. Um, However, I don't want to lose sight of the benefit of a full full four-year kind of uh, experience for the university. Um, There's things that happen in a university that go beyond just learning to be Microsoft certified. Now, there's growth that happens in people from the ages of 18 to 22 or whatever the ages of the university are, um, where they learn to be the people they want to be in the future. Um, They learn the skills to live on their own and have uh, be social and those kinds of things that they may not like it's in many, in many cases, it's the first time they, excuse me. In many cases, it's the first time they've lived away from their folks and from their family. And so there's benefits to that. But there's also benefit to having a more kind of holistic view of the world. And uh, a social sciences degree, like, uh, you know, those kinds of degrees, um, reading histories, uh, you know, uh, understanding the physical world, this kind of well-rounded education that can come from a... Uh, uh, from a full immersion into the experience of college is valuable. And I think that oftentimes the, the corporations, the businesses that are putting pressure on, uh, on, on us to do the micro-credentialing kinds of things are also saying they value creativity, the ability to work together. They want to have uh, uh, people who are uh, well-rounded, and uh, social and those kinds of things. Um, and we can't get that through micro-credentialing. You have to do that through the larger scale. So I think that the, the, the true answer to your question is that there's a balance that we've got to, uh, that we've got to um, uh, achieve of this meeting the needs, the, uh, the, the, the immediate needs, professional needs of the students so that they're employable, but also meeting the lifelong learning needs of the students so that they become well-balanced people who can function in a society uh, as they grow older. And I think you can have both of those things. It's just that um, uh, th- we're at this tipping point where the pressures are trying to take us in one of the two directions, but I, I, I don't like the that, that artificial either-or kind of approach. I'd rather have like an and uh, conversation. Hey, that's a, that's a very nice, a very um, good answer. Just um, started to think because you mentioned that um, when you moved uh, to Greece, um, that moment helped you to um, to 
really kind of decide who you are. And I was just thinking, uh, I mean, it, it might take a while before companies start offering micro-credentials um, for learning philosophy or history right, of right. art and, and so on. I mean, I'm just, I was just connecting um, to my experience uh, being at the university where I could really freely take that, okay, well, I actually want to study some philosophy, right? And, yeah. and so I go there because I want to, it to be part of my identity. I don't know yet, but perhaps the future will tell, right? Yeah. So I really, really like what you just said. I, that's, that's, uh, yeah, that's perhaps <laughs> why universities should actually exist in the future. Yeah, I mean, and that's what they were started as. Was universities were intended to be the place where people became fully formed people. And over time, we got caught in this idea of being specialists. And so, no. you know, um, we train we train students to become computer scientists, programmers, those kinds of things. But the reality of the world is that the student who eventually goes and becomes a programmer for a corporation, that's not the entirety of their life. That's a part of it. And it's an important part. It makes them able to uh, make money and live uh, the life they want to live. But what does the rest of their life look like? What is that life that they want to live? I'm guessing it's not just computer science. They want other things in their lives. And that's where the balance comes in. Mm, exactly. And also, I mean, it's one thing to write software, but another thing is to decide um, what kind of software we actually need, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. What actually benefits? Not. I mean, not, I'm not thinking about just... Um, underlying some some service but uh what this society actually needs right right yeah the, the, and that gets us back to this point about like it's not a question with most technologies of if it can happen it's when it will happen but we have that human part of it that it, like we can't underestimate the decisions that we make when we design technologies because they have real world consequences as we move forward, you know, um, just look at social media. Mm. You know, that's a question. Of, it wasn't a question of if or if they could do it. They did it. They built these social media sites, but they didn't necessarily think about the knock-on effects of it. And mm. now we, as a world, are grappling with that in good and bad ways. You know, mm. I'm more connected to the people I went to high school with than I ever was before because we don't have reunions. Uh, we I graduated in Greece, so people like were they, they they scattered afterwards. It's not like hometown where people kind of stayed around and can come home for their five year reunion or ten year reunion. So I hadn't kept in touch with many of those people until social media came about, and I'm richer for having done that. But we have to understand the downside that comes from the underlying philosophy of these technologies. Mm. And I'm not trying to beat up on social media. That's you know, it's fashionable to beat up on social media. All of these technologies do this. We, uh, we, 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 like we, we like to pretend that it's just the technology. That's the thing that's that that's causing it. But we're we're losing this sense of like, no, the people behind the scenes are the ones who make the decisions mm. that influence the form of that technology. Mm. And so we can't separate ourselves from the technology we we have to understand our responsibility there mm -hmm. yeah they're addictive by design kind of on yeah, yeah. the social media platforms and 
And, um, yeah, that's so, um, that's pretty deep. I mean, I would, I just, uh, told my student, uh, today because, uh, she's, uh, creating an editor for augmented reality. And I said that exactly kind of to the same direction that, um, it would be so cool to have an editor that says that, well, if you, def- if you have this kind of, um, activities or functionalities, then it means that the user will spend, let's say, 10 minutes doing those. And, mm-hmm. and more you add, I mean, and especially if you have some addictive elements, then of course, suddenly perhaps the user spends 12 hours. <laughs> yeah. And is that holistic anymore? Yeah. I mean, is that really <laughs> beneficial? I mean, I don't know. I don't think so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, 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 what's the old axiom? All things in moderation, right? We, you know, if you if you find yourself playing, maybe it's not the video game that's the problem. Maybe, maybe there's something else that play there. So again, we're we're getting into very deep topics here. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Let's, let's have another uh, episode with the deep topics. Hey, I, I want to ask you uh, um, one thing uh, still. So this is kind of a final question, and um, ask this uh, from all guests because the. Um, Podcast is uh, cloud reachers. Um, so meaning cloud meaning like something better, something like a dream, perhaps online. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, something better, something that is kind of out there and we still want to reach it out. Um, so what or which could be a cloud reacher in your field? What do you think? Are we talking about people or are we talking uh, about yeah, who or what? It, it yeah. basically anything. Um, well, I'm going to take this in a slightly different direction because this is uh, the, the person I'm going to mention here is not necessarily in my field. He retired a few years back, so he's no longer an, an active uh, um, academic. And, but my my doctoral committee chair it was a man named Dwight Allen, who I met as an undergraduate at this or at, at the university. I got my I got all three of my degrees. Uh, my bachelor's, my master's, and my PhD from Old Dominion University in Norfolk, Virginia, and that's un, uh, that's uncommon in the states. We have pro- uh, like it's very rare to stay around at an institution for all three of your degrees, and I did so because I met Dwight as an undergrad, and he was another one of these pivot points in my life. He was. Um, the, the he was such a lateral thinker that it drew me to um, uh, working with him. The idea of it, we all say we want to empower students, but um, he did so in very practical ways. Sometime to his detriment, because um, he would he, he would like I worked with him as a graduate student for a while and. Um, I would come to him with some harebrained idea of, oh, let's, uh, wouldn't it be cool to do this? And he'd say, yeah, do that. And I would then be stuck on the hook to make it happen. Um, and so I, like, uh, we were, uh, <laughs> I, I was trained as an undergrad to be a history teacher. That's what I had always imagined I would do with my life. I was going to be a high school history teacher. And then, the, and, you know, if that, had, if my career had gone a different direction, I'd be probably 25 years into being that right now. Um, but um, I, 
I went to him in the mid nineties, like 94, 95 timeframe and, and told him, Hey, you know, there's this new thing, this internet thing. Why don't we use it to give students our tests rather than paper and pencil tests? And he says, sounds great. Make it happen. And I had no idea what I was doing. I had to learn uh, database programming. I had to learn web design and it was a mess, but eventually it, coalesced into an online testing protocol uh, protocol that we called um uh um iTest. iTest? Yeah. Um but this is like this is well before most courses were online even. This was us giving tests through the internet was like a big deal back at the time. Um and it seems kind of tame now, but the idea that he was willing to just give me that freedom to say you have an idea, see if you can make it reality, um, led me to have, a, you know, to having a skill set that I wouldn't have had otherwise. And it, it, his pushing me to say, like, you're capable of doing a doctorate. Why do you, like, why do you doubt yourself? Um, it, it, all of these, all, all of the guidance that he gave to me as a mentor and a friend um, was about pushing my own self and being like like this this idea of being a cloud reacher, someone who is reaching for the the sky, reaching for uh, new and better things. To me, the, the Dwight is the epitome of that as a as philosophy in his philosophy and his practice, and it's something I try to do with my students as well. I try to I, I try to serve that same purpose for them. Um, hopefully, um, uh, again, attempting. Uh, Probably not quite as successfully as he is because he's a different person than I am. But um, I, 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 I can't speak highly enough about him as a mentor and him as a as a person. Uh, and I don't. I, I would not be the person I am today without his guidance. Thanks. Uh, that's um, thanks for sharing. I, I just uh, <laughs> came mind to a metaphor: uh, warm air and sailplanes. So warm air pushing the sailplane, um, still giving freedom, right? I mean, you can still go wherever you want, but, uh, well, warm air is putting the sailplane to higher, yeah. higher altitudes. Yeah. And the, the, the benefit is that I didn't realize this at the time, but he, like, oftentimes when you're working with graduate students, Sometimes they do great work. Sometimes they are flaky. And I would, I, uh, you know, if I'm being honest with myself, I was both of those things. Sometimes I did great work. Sometimes I was flaky. I was 22, 25, you know, the, 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 in that age range, I was still like figuring it out. I was, uh, I, <laughs> I was trying to live my own life at the same time. <laughs> there. Yeah. And I was, I was not as mature as I would like to think I am now. And so I made mistakes. And to his benefit, he, he, he protected me from those mistakes. He understood that the mistakes that I was making were not defining of who I am. And so whereas other people might have like come down on me for failing at a task, for instance, because I'd been up too late the night before and didn't get a good mm -hmm. night's sleep, he understood that that was not the best thing to happen like like it wasn't going to be a valuable experience for me to get yelled at for missing a deadline it was much more uh, understanding 
uh, than that. Mm-hmm. So uh, again, I, I, uh, I, I, a lot of that was hidden from me at the time, but reflecting back, I understood that, you know, as a professor, he was, he was doing all of those leadership things that people say they're supposed to do, uh, you know, uh, deferring credit to the, uh, to the, to the people accepting, uh, the blame when things went wrong. All of those things were, uh, were uh, things that he was demonstrating to me without coming right out and saying it to me. He wasn't trying to be lecture. He didn't try to lecture me about these things. He was showing me rather than telling me. Mm-hmm. I, I, hey, thanks for sharing that. And please, if you have, a, does he have a website or anything we could um, link to? The yeah, unfortunately, he's 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 long re- re- since retired. He's uh, he's a he's in his nineties now. Okay. So he, doesn't have, <laughs> he doesn't have his. Uh, uh, he doesn't have the same uh, uh, kind of academic footprint that he would have had before. Yeah. Um, but I can, you know, I can share some of so, his yeah. his details with you. If you that if you that would be great. I would like to um, because uh, many listeners um, they they want to dive into topics uh, more yeah. deeply, and I think and if, if, have if some links to. Some, if you're looking for a researcher who is like the rock star in the field right now, um, the, the the person I would point to is Chris Deedy at Harvard's Graduate School of Education. I did my postdoctoral fellowship with him. Uh, that that's where I started in augmented reality, and he's doing fantastic work. So if you if you're looking for someone who's still on the academic radar and still uh, putting stuff out there, I'll, I'll, I'll give you his information as well. Yeah, great. One of the best bosses I ever had, by the way. Fantastic. Fantastic guy. Fantastic boss. Uh, it's of the same mold as Dwight. So uh, a, a, a lot of the same things that I just said about Dwight apply to Chris as well. Thanks. Hey, please share. Absolutely. That's, uh, that's great. We, we are just preparing a website for the podcast. It will be released, uh, super soon. And, uh, we, we just need all of this content, uh, there and, uh, to, to serve better the listeners, uh, beyond the podcast. Um, Patrick, thanks so much for joining me. It's, uh, it's, it was a pleasure. I learned so much. Um, that was a brilliant. Brilliant um, to hear your about your background, or your thoughts about augmented reality, and uh, we we could <laughs> go on forever. But uh, let's uh, let's have another episode. I appreciate it. I really appreciate your uh, the opportunity to come on and talk with you. I enjoyed our conversation when you were a guest on my podcast, and so I'm always happy to uh, to um, return the favor. Excellent. Let's uh, let's have a perhaps uh, next time I'll be in your podcast and uh, next time I mean next next yeah. time you'll be here again and uh, let's continue this conversation. I really really like and uh, we have our drinks. Well, I mean at least I have still my. Yes. my I have <laughs> I have some lemonade. So I'll <laughs> yeah. Well, this is kind of uh, lemonade as well. It's uh, it's this kind of tonic water that uh, I don't want to say the brand because I don't want to go to advertising. It too much, yes, but yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. So hey, thanks. Um, so have a nice run. I don't. I know that you are going to run now. Um, I'll do the same. Um, take care and um, and uh, see you soon. Hopefully. Thanks. This was Cloud Reachers. I'm Tommy Open. Thanks for joining. Stay tuned. Ciao.